0: You're listening to the first real episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 1, Vultures in the Sky. This song was written in that period when songs flew out of me seemingly daily. In my early 20s, when or because I was learning basic guitar and songwriting, I forgot or discarded three songs for every one that I still remember. Every time I learned a new minor chord, it meant a new song. That doesn't continue forever. Eventually, you start repeating yourself, start saying things you've already said in a very similar way to how you said them before. You start sounding like you're ripping off your own tunes. New to the podcast this season is the Frequently Asked Questions, or FAQ portion. So here goes.
1: Try what you like. Try what you like do what you like. Crack time, it's time, it's time. is time, it's time, it's time. Crack time, it's time, it's time. Frequently Asked Questions.
2: Let's look at some Frequently Asked Questions.
0: Well... After a few months of collecting each and every question I could gather from posting on social media and emails and contacts from listeners, I still have no questions to answer at all. No one asked me anything. And after briefly toying with inventing an NAQ, never asked questions, with silly made-up questions to answer, I eventually scrapped that. Might as well do Trying to Work Things Out Part 2 then.
3: Trying to Work Things Out Part 2. I use words to work things out.
0: I got to hang out with Troy recently for the first time in several years. Something I've been really missing lately is talking with anyone who was there back in the day when. Witnesses to what happened to us. Most of the people from my past who used to know me have moved away and on with their lives and aren't interested or part of anything I'm up to now. There's no talking between us. They have kids and jobs and stuff. Fad diets to invest in and discuss endlessly. Lessons to pick kids up from and drop them off at. Toddlers interpretive dance recitals to attend. Vasectomies to heal from. But Troy is only married and is childless by choice, so he was able to drop by with only two phone calls and three inquiring texts from his wife during the time he was here. I've known Troy since the early 90s, and I've been in many bands with him and recorded him many times. I've also frequently gone and seen him play in other bands. The plan for this element of the podcast is to look at how I deal with things socially, how there are many ways to deal, and what has worked or not worked, and maybe glean some understanding. Hopefully it makes listeners compare notes and think too. Early in meeting me, as I've said before, Bill told me I didn't have a working fit, and like with a lot of things, he was right. Often once I start into a discussion, I just keep going, asserting my end of things, pursuing my views and agenda trying to work things out when others aren't willing to deal or have run entirely out of steam. I keep trying to figure out what they're getting at. I don't tap out, I don't pull the ripcord, I don't call for backup, I don't know when to walk away. That saying f*** it appropriately and walking away function has started to work better and better with age and career and COVID, but at best it's still like one of those flashlights that only turns on sometimes and often needs you to shake it, possibly to get it to maybe light up. Troy explained that most people we know either passively avoid talking about any number of things that might be problematic in a relationship, or else they aggressively or passively-aggressively end the relationship without ever discussing those things, and resent, and dismiss, and forget most of it in a kind of blind, unconsidered way. So the two or three or four of you friends, or people in a band or in a church... Try to maintain a working relationship, all with the understanding that each has things they don't want anyone going into or discussing. There are certain unspoken but vital things that they need everyone else to never mention. In some cases, if you infringe on that, the relationship is over. Often these taboo topics, these things people are refusing to discuss or deal with, are hedged about with aggressive or passive-aggressive or defensive responses if anyone even approaches them. They need to not have things put into words, not not real words, not direct words. There's a certain amount of letting off steam or relieving pressure by swearing at each other with rude words or losing one's temper and having a relationship that demonstrably can weather that, but no real words on various of the topics, not a genuine verbal throwdown that gets into the nitty-gritty of what's really going on. Well, I'm the opposite. I generally need complicated, suspicious, contentious, difficult, or problematic things to be put into words rather than sidestepped. To me, it's like there are landmines all around, and I want to set them off some Saturday so we can then walk around freely, knowing there aren't emotional incendiaries buried here and there in the yard. Another analogy is that my cat has once again today left dismembered and eviscerated mouse members and viscera strewn across my kitchen floor. I don't want to keep stepping over them this morning, so I think I'll deal with them, have a clean floor to use, go around, pick up the messy stuff, and set things right. Failing that, I want us to agree, with words, that there are areas we're not going into, like putting a danger sign beside a given landmine or mouse pancreas.
3: If someone comes at you in an aggressive manner for whatever reason that happens to be, you're general is I I will be calm we will be relaxed and maybe maybe that will calm you down too that's the I think the initial idea we will stay calm cool collected you're getting emotionally you know aggressive about the whole thing if that reaches a point where the other party whoever it happens to be isn't looking for that and they want to hurt you now they're going to start pulling things out of the old ammunition belt and hammering at you until they find something but you're actively going to not let that happen. But in retaliation, like as a as a return fire of sorts, your defense is usually just to attack the reasoning that they're using for bringing that out. In the sense of like if they say, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, remember that thing that you told me about you as a child? I came at you, they come at you with that as a way of saying you are pathetic your thing would be like, "Well, why would you bring that, that up? Did, did that happen to you as a child?" Like, it will never be direct. You will never just tell that person to go fuck themselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It will never happen. I mean, I don't think I've ever even seen you come close to that kind of engagement, but it will, you will sort of parry and 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 and, 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 po- and poke. Parry poke, parry poke. And that's you getting aggressive as as aggressive I think is 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 possible.
0: (laughs) And we kind of agreed that I wasn't raised that my feelings matter. So I wasn't raised to give in to them and fill the room up with I feel blah blah blah. I always felt that losing my temper was sin. I know some people who think that Jesus never got angry because that would be sin and it's that's hard to justify given all the discussion about God losing his temper. Um, people will say God's angry, but not that he lost his temper because they think that the loss of control is the gravest sin. And so I think I've always been scared to lose control, especially with my temper. Uh, I never wanted to have to apologize and say, look, I completely lost my temper and didn't mean any of the things that I said. And that puts me in what we're talking about. Um, You were saying that it's almost like fencing?
3: Yeah, like it is. It is definitely like fencing in the sense that it is a parry, and then a quick little poke, like not not a not a jab, not a thrust, not a, a way to injure. You don't want to disable the person, but you just want to keep poking at them, and just go stop.
0: Just be- because just stop. I need a way to say off, and yes. I can't say those words. Yeah, like generating
3: generating that much loss of control would be uh, just as damaging as anything that the other person could say. To,
0: uh, if, in fact, probably more so. It does. It comes across as overkill because their insult is, like, you're an asshole, and my insult is, well, you've never been able to deal with conflict, and it's like, whoops, because mine's true, and everyone knows it, and no one's saying it, and I'm actually not an asshole, so when he said it, he was just trying to make me mad, and what I said wasn't just trying to make him mad, it was truth, and it wasn't gracious or kind truth.
3: Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, is it's 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 a really... It's like the. It's almost like literally taking the concept of killing with kindness, yeah, and really doing it, like actually killing with kindness,
0: returning good for evil in a way, and heaping coals of fire on their
3: head. You are not a person that wants to do evil. You're all, you're hardwired as a result of your your upbringing, um, and losing control as a whole is just not something that's easy for you and probably other
0: people. To, it's it's in your not hard to deal for with. people to tell they're getting to me yet I won't lose my temper.
3: Yeah, I I think if someone's observant and they're getting into this, like, in anything kind of, you know, this sort of where emotional breakdowns can happen, regardless, good, bad, whatever, I think that, yeah, like, some people will see, like, okay, this is what is getting mad for you. But it's it's definitely for you. It's like no, I've maintained my composure. I haven't. My voice is not changed. You know, my my loudness. All of that is. And in fact, you're probably going to in some ways slow it down more to seem even because like yeah. all right, well now we're going to talk like this, and you're kind of going to go into almost um, like a psychoanalyst kind of mode at that point.
0: And this definitely works as a teacher, but it doesn't work when people are trying to have an argument with you.
3: Uh, who are
0: not. who are equals?
3: I think that there are a lot of people that they just want a, a huge boom like the kaboom
1: yeah you know
3: they where's the earth shattering kaboom the individual like whoever's being gotten to this point they've made a commitment to it they may have realized it now they can't back down so they need to get you to, to just come up to the level so we can all go yep we all made a mistake we all get to walk away and feel better if people get really angry and then suddenly back down it's going to get the person feeling hot on the neck, that classic, I've done something really stupid, mm-hmm. and they nobody wants that, nobody ever wants that, and so they usually double down and just get even angrier or walk off, but the solution could be completely solved by if you had just responded with a loud, fuck off, or go fuck yourself, and there's literally no malice anymore, it mm-hmm. just needed to kind of come to yeah. a an explosion, an eruption, everybody's like, oh, you know what, we're all here, let's just calm down.
0: Something that I tell Christians is that, because Christians have a problem about swearing, and, you know, far be it to justify swearing, but maybe, um, almost all animals have a warning sound that means that we're not we're not playing. If this keeps up, I'm gonna bite you, or something. So, I mean, a lot of animals have hissing sounds and growling sounds, roaring sounds, and they have posture, um, everything that basically says, If you have any idea how to read my body language, you know that there's no more um, playing around with me right now. Cats do it, dogs do it. And there are those really dangerous dogs. They don't growl, they just bite you. And that's what I think of some of us Christians have a problem with, is socially we smile or be completely calm and then do something that actually really does hurt the other person. And it may be in the form of like with me telling truth that people don't like when they were just throwing fire, but there there was nothing behind it but emotion. And I hide the emotion and because I don't feel I can let it out. And I say something true that is hurtful, maybe.
3: That's biting, I think. Well, and again, this is me, because, I mean, it's definitely something that should be disclosed, is that I was not raised in any kind of real religion. I've been on the periphery exposed to it. So, I mean, it's important that any of my observations are strictly from a person on the outside but Mm -hmm. most of the time i think with people certainly like yourselves who are raised in a very indoctrinated kind of thing you're taught that there are like almost rules of engagement Mm -hmm. there is a geneva convention for all interaction because you have a person that tells you here's how to live your life the best way so
0: we had two church divisions and from the best of my experience of it and hearing about it, someone punched somebody, but they never swore. <laughs> that just... They actually tore up families, told the whole world that all these people were wicked people and separated from them and that they were serving Satan, but they would never swear about them or at them. And in the one case, apparently, a guy punched someone in the parking lot, but never swore because that... And the punching, obviously, is a big... Once you've done that, everyone can say, ha, that guy punched somebody, and now you've lost. Like You've more than lost the engagement. You're also now someone who, in the past, punched somebody one time. And you'll notice that, with that culture, how embarrassing that you're the guy that punched someone one time. But nobody had to be embarrassed that you're the guy who said, f*** off, that one time. Because nobody did that. Because that would be worse.
3: And, yeah, I mean, right there, to me, that starts to spell a... A very confused worldview.
0: People are shocked when I tell them that we were beaten with a wooden paddle with Bible verses written on it to tell us why we we're being beaten with it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's what made the real trauma. I think all of the trauma was psychological and emotional and social in the family.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's something really warped about your parent, you know, telling you that basically they're going to hit you. Because God wants them to, and it, they're being a good parent by doing this, and it hurts them more than it hurts you. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, withdrawing their affection from you and, uh, you know, for The pain other you feel reasons. is love.
0: Love from God channeled through the loving Father.
4: And then having to come down and apologize and sit and have this weird fake um, affection given to you, Mm -hmm. um, of restitution. And it didn't, that hug didn't feel like a hug. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like restitution. It felt awkward. It felt stiff. It felt like what the hell just happened here?
0: Would you agree that I got hit a lot and almost all of it was an attempt to change how I viewed things or how I thought?
4: Yeah, it was, it was trying to control you because, um, you were much more, just you were just who you were you had a you had kind of an identity from birth that wasn't negotiable for you or for anyone else so what was happening I think was that that identity was in opposition to dad's authority so he was like okay well how do you get rid of that because that needs to go because that doesn't match the way he's supposed to be and it was like okay well If he doesn't listen to words, then we'll beat it out of him. And I need to do this and do it differently than my dad. So I'll make sure that I've got scripture backing it. Mm -hmm. And I'll even put the scripture on the paddle so that, you know, it's very clear every single time he's hit that I'm doing this from a justified position.
0: Mm -hmm. Generally in life, I need to deal. And that's how I do it with the words. In fact, I will go along with and support people who are making somewhat dubious choices or avoiding dealing entirely so long as they'll put that into words. If they state their intention clearly, I will most likely leave them to pursue it. You can't agree to disagree unless you talked about the matter to begin with. At a job, if there's a rule and it doesn't make sense, I desperately need A. For people to admit that this is a rule to begin with, given that we have to follow it and we get punished if we don't, and B, for people to agree that maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense, but C, we're going to have the rule anyway. If you'll admit all of that, in words, I'm suddenly pretty cooperative. Never has this been more of a thing than during COVID, as schools and other workplaces struggled to deal and make or inherit often quite random superstitious policies from farther up the food chain. There are many rules. Many contradict one another or change without warning for no apparent reason, and some of them don't make a lick of sense. So the science seems to change, like the tides. We're going to have the rules anyway. That's how our day is going to go. That's what I need. I don't need to go on strike and stand outside with a sign, objecting, nor do I need to yell and drag anyone who says anything which questions the rules. Maybe, unlike a lot of people, I will deeply resent the situation and feel uncomfortable Until the thing is admitted to or put into words, I'll feel like I'm stuck waiting for an endless number of other shoes to drop. And I can't deal like that. Takes me right back to being eight. Was I or was I not going to get punished with the Bible paddle? I was going to get punished. Well, why? For asking questions instead of obeying silently. For asking my parents to put things into words. That's what it's like when I'm trying to deal and I'm not allowed to work with words. Someone's threatening to hit you, and they won't tell you why. Looking at the lyrics of Vultures in the Sky now, rather as if they were written by a completely different person, what strikes me is how much they are about finding oneself in a landscape that is mainly uncomfortable, unwelcoming, and filled with a sense of the futile. That's what my 20s, after graduating and the 90s in general waiting to get kicked out of my church and having woman after woman give me a brief addition for the part then sending me packing with promises to call my agent felt like to me. This album is kind of a compilation of my songs that dealt largely with death as a concept. People killing joy, people killing time, endings in general, living deaths, just deaths. This song in particular is about entropy and mortality, nothing gold will stay. The sort of stuff I've been thinking about since I was very little. I have sometimes called it the gray horizon, with people and things inevitably fading away over the gray horizon and being gone forever. So it's kind of about death, but also about time, I guess. Melody can relate a bit.
5: Personally, I am of melancholy temperament, and that is how things seem.
0: And entropy is real?
5: Yes, we are spinning towards, you know... Things fall apart. The center cannot hold Mm -hmm. everything.
0: Anarchy is loosed in the world. (laughs) Yes. Um, yes. Um, I'm like that. Um, I was just, I mean, I'm only 51 and I'm repairing a deck on the house that I bought. And I was just putting screws into the deck and thinking, well, if all goes well, I'll never have to replace these because I'll be dead. And and that's not a a cheerful thought upon fixing your deck by the lake, but that's my brain. And I think our, our church didn't really help that. Now that I'm in mid-middle age, I know that loss through the ravages of time is a serious thing, a profound feeling to have, and we tend to laugh at young people who are decades away from much of this stuff really hitting home, yet are sitting around thinking about mortality and making poems about it like I did, but I think we can feel that train a-coming all that time earlier. I got various people to do Zoom calls with me and talk about growing up in a church and what it might have been like for a stranger unfamiliar with the routine to walk in the door. My neighbor, Emily, raised a charismatic Christian, now a devout, vegan, atheist, animal rights and environmental activist, said this when I talked about the song concept. Part of what I was imagining, um, those old Clint Eastwood Westerns, um, how the story starts, is this person who doesn't even have a name, a mysterious person, rides or walks in uh, over the horizon and encounters whatever town situation you want to set up for your movie. And so that's what I was doing with my album is is the narrator, observer figure kind of comes in and then finds some very culty and crazy stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That, and uh, because, see, I was raised in it. And so one of the problems is that it's, it seems normal to me in a weird way. And what mm-hmm. I was trying to do as a mental exercise is imagine if some outsider comes in and sees it all, what would they make of it? What would that be like? What if they were tempted to join rather than having been born in it?
2: Mm-hmm. The emotions that that brings up are wistfulness and regret.
0: There'll be a lot more in upcoming episodes from YouTube influencer, mindfulness and yoga instructor, and all-around gorgeous human being, Angel DeSantis, who spoke to me about growing up in a literal cult.
4: My name is Angel DeSantis, and I grew up in a cult called the Children of God. And I was born and raised in it, which means that they got to form 100% of my thought algorithms and my worldview and my prejudices and all of that.
2: I was born into Christianity and I was born into a charismatic church. So that was all I knew because I was immersed in that culture um, and was experiencing it on a daily basis. I didn't think about it or how it would seem to others. But now when I encounter that, you know, if I go into a setting where, you know, it's very similar to what I grew up with, um, or if I hear the kind of language that I grew up with, you know, Christianese, so to speak, it's very familiar and I understand it all. And there is a level of, um, I wouldn't say it's like, comfort, but just almost like at home in that. Mm-hmm. But also after having been out of it for years, and um, my ideas and opinions and uh, having changed dramatically. It's also like, Oh, gosh, how did I ever believe that? You know, how did mm-hmm. I? How did I talk that way? Um, and it does seem very strange to me, even though there is that sense of Oh yeah, I know all of this. I understand all of this. You know, I almost feel at home here. There is that sense of it being so alien and strange. Did and then you... it's crazy.
0: I asked Natalie who was raised Mormon about whether strangers tended to come out to her church. I don't know with, with Mormons if bringing out strangers to try to convert them, like bringing them out to church was much okay. of a thing.
2: One Sunday a month, we would have lunch after church and you could invite people to come with you. We would do um, Wednesday nights were youth nights and you're always encouraged to bring a friend with you. The missionaries were always around and ready to chat with whoever wanted to listen.
0: I also asked my sister Debbie about the same experience. What was sort of like the most embarrassing thing that if you brought someone out to meeting, you're sort of embarrassed that they had to see?
4: Oh, that's such a good question because everything was embarrassing to me. Um, Even walking up the sidewalk, um, being told that I had to wear my head covering, the veil weird thing that we had to wear as women. So um, having to wear that on the sidewalk, going up to the hall, I was always petrified that someone from school would see me walking into this weird unmarked hall in some weird veil.
0: Several people talked about the head coverings and... One point of detail, a lot of people would just walk up the sidewalk without it on, and they would only have to put it on, take it out of their purse when they walked in, but that wasn't you, right?
4: I just remember there being some strict particular rules that Dad had in terms of when it was permissible to take off the head covering and when it should be on, and I remember... Having the idea at least that it had to be on as I approached the the building, and as I got to be a teenager and started to rebel, those were my little micro rebellions. I wouldn't put it on to the last minute, or I'd take it off before I exited the building because that was my pushing back against particularly um dad's form of of uh cultish religious and, and he behavior. was pretty
0: overt with you that the reason why you were wearing it was to to demonstrate overtly that you were submissive to males.
4: Yes, yeah, submissive.
6: Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered.
4: There was something about covering your hair, but then I remember there being some rebels that were talking about, well, what if we shaved our heads? If we were women and we shaved our heads, then would we still have to wear the veil? And for some reason, they were like, oh, no, 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 you can't shave your head. And yeah, you would still have to wear it. So there was, but with that, it was very, very particularly that that was your symbol of obedience to males.
0: Debbie agreed with me about the incredible value in talking to someone who had an outside perspective on our insular little world.
4: Curry was like a big, a real...
0: Reality check? Um,
4: yeah, reality check. His perspective was always um, to the point, fresh, and pretty accurate. And um, I, yeah, so I So we, feel... we
0: do something like the head coverings or not swearing or or something. And he'd go along with it and be nice. But then he'd say, well, you know, that's really f***ed <laughs> up though, right? <laughs>
4: I know, and I love that. That yeah, I because, loved it when he say that. Because
0: sometimes we didn't know, and and he gave us the opportunity to think about maybe it was.
4: Yeah, yeah. He was, in, and he he didn't. He shot from the hip, and it was uh, it was awesome because it also was really funny that he would say, yeah, you know, that's really up, right? Like, he, yeah. and he'd be going along with it. He'd be at the yeah. young people's thing, wearing a pink sweater or whatever it was that you know like dressed up, but because there were hot girls there, Mm -hmm. but he'd never lose the ability to just shoot it all down in an instant. And uh, it was, yeah, kept me sane.
0: My old bandmate, Troy, was a healthy, heathen, ungodly, worldly, rank unbeliever who was outreached and in-pulled into a children's church program when he was young.
3: Definitely starting probably in uh, like the kindergarten era. So we're talking like, you know, the five to six years old type of thing there was a um, uh, a church that had this youth group thing, and you could go to it, and it was like um, like Christian Youth something. CYC is the acronym. It's been so long. And it eventually became CLC.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but, yeah, I was run by this church, and it was the reason I got into it was because um, they actually paid for a bus uh, to come pick everybody up. They would drive wherever you were out in the country, and they pick everybody up, and it was a great way to kind of like hang out with all your friends on a Wednesday night type of thing. And then, you know, you'd be on the bus for quite a while because they're driving one bus to pick everybody up. And then you'd go be there. And then, of course, you'd sing all these songs and they would sort of talk, you know, some parables and stuff. And you'd, depending on your age, you'd do crafts and and maybe talk about how life relates as you got older. And it went to about probably, you know, the end of primary school um, for that particular thing. Uh, and then after that was there was sometimes extensions where you went into good memories of that or yeah I think overall I up until I got a bit older when um sort of the you know when you're young children kind of you know kids don't have the exposure to things that most of the, the people here are really going to take offense to but as I got older and wanted to do more interesting things and really I was just sort of going there to hang out with people and it's like, now you're getting in my way with this. Like, hmm. it's like, I'm not interested in this at all, but we have to kind of do this and okay, whatever. And, oh yes, we need to sing these songs. Okay, here's the song that we sing all the books of the Bible, like by name and, you know, Lucas, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and jo- Joshua, Judges. Like I can remember parts of the song right. in my head because I've sang it so many times.
2: Reading was part of it, but like they were songs of verses mm-hmm. too that you were supposed to remember.
0: That's powerful.
2: Is that the one that goes? Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> I vaulted deftly onto YouTube and looked into the matter to see if Natalie was singing the Disciples song or not. Turns out, virtually any tune from Twinkle Twinkle Little Star to the Battle Hymn of the Republic is in weekly use teaching children various Bible things. In this case, the subject was the books of the Bible rather than the Disciples.
5: Hey, you Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Psalms, Ezekiel,
1: De-
0: Somewhat embarrassingly, the tune is actually co-opted from this not terribly 21st century approved song.
1: One little, two little, three little Indians, <laughs> four little, five little, six little
3: And then, you know, you'd split off into your groups and, and they want to do things. But as you get to be older, you're kind of like, I don't want to do this. I just wanted to hang out with these people. Seem childish? Yeah, childish and almost like... Culty? Yeah, a little culty. And also just odd. Like, that seems contrary. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's when they start kind of... It's at the slightly older age, like, well, you wouldn't want to do that. I'm like, well, why not? Mm-hmm. It's when you start to become that age of... I'm going to ask you questions, either A, because I'm just being... A little shit mm-hmm. but in some cases it's genuine when they're like well we need to do this because the bible says we do that i'm like well that seems really odd it doesn't make mm-hmm. a lot of sense your example is based on something that happened yeah you know, like hundreds of years ago how is that applicable anymore mm-hmm. and their answer would usually be well it just doesn't matter yeah. and i think that as your brain matures you're suddenly like i'm asking these questions and your answers are extremely weak mm-hmm. and p- almost nonsensical it's like yeah but everybody does that Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah but you shouldn't well why not
0: what's an example of a a thing that everyone does that they were saying not to do
3: well it would have definitely been things like you know don't swear always be nice like usually the
0: don't do this always you know do your homework do they ever have any of that satanic panic stuff you have eyewitnesses for instance one case the parents were actually saw their child summon uh, dungeons and dragons demons into his room before he killed himself another case the kid had Thought he had the ability to astral travel, coming from the D- Dungeons and Dragons game, that he could leave his body and come back, and he had rigged it up just according to the rule book so he could do it. He was surrounded by his materials and put a bullet in his head so he could leave his body, and he's never come back.
3: Oddly enough, I don't recall any of it um, directly. I never, rem- I don't recall them ever talking about role playing, like because.
0: Or horror movies or rock music either?
3: So at one point, that did cause a rift where I talked about a very specific movie. It's called The First Power. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) The First Power. It stars... um, Lou
1: Diamond Phillips is hunting a man who kills for the sake of killing.
3: Uh, Lou Diamond
0: Phillips. Luda. How did I know that Lou Diamond <laughs> mean, Phillips was... It? And
3: he's a cop, and it involves, like, you know, like, uh, a, you know, this person who worships Satan who gets powers. Like, in the first power is, like, you know, this thing, and the second power is another thing. It's like evolutions or whatever of this thing. And I remember talking about it the uh, in this group... And it becoming a big deal, like, oh you, oh no, no, we can't tell well, it's like well, we're talking about a movie well, let's talk about well, what's wrong with Satan. and be like, oh and it's it's not that you you couldn't even discuss that, yeah.
0: like it's like, no, that will not be in in the first power, the is power. it that the hero is in league with like evil powers and is getting power, or is that the villain is doing it's
3: that? the it's the villain, and he's kind of coming to. He's like the lapsed Catholic.
0: I'm not shocked because he, like the, the biggest argument that I would have put forth if I wasn't a Christian person who was freaking out about the, the occult and feeling guilty because I was trained to feel guilty is to say it's the bad people who are doing the bad things. And so if the moral the movie has a moral, it's don't do Satanism. That's basically what the movie is saying is that this guy did Satanism and now we've got to have Lou Diamond Phillips fix the situation.
3: Yeah, pretty much. And yet it was a big deal to talk about these kinds of movies. But... Then that might bring, well, let's watch this part of this movie. And it might be like, let's watch a little bit of Ben-Hur. Or
4: Mm -hmm.
3: I think there was times where if the person left and we were just sort of sitting around, you know, doing nothing and someone had a tape, they might have put it in and they'd be coming and be like, no, you can't listen to that here. Mm -hmm. I don't think it ever gotten to that point. Everyone was pretty relaxed for the most part. We hadn't hit that stage yet where outright rebellion was necessary the people who had really fallen into that level had probably stopped coming by that point
0: point. and this was being put on by a charismatic church i think you said
3: yeah i'm trying to remember it's it might have been pentecostal type thing I, I, yeah it was just this one church downtown perth specifically right there and, and yeah they just they did it forever some people thought it was crazy um but they would let their kids go because it was like great the kids get out of the house and we don't have to pay anything
0: At church, we sat through the mind-numbing routine of weekly meetings, mostly filled with faux-Victorian gobbledygook by people who frequently attempted Elizabethan verb tenses, and in so doing afresh, many a man made it clear that verily he had a stit no idea how to do a stit properly. And every now and then, the unthinkable, an outsider, came in, sat down, and heard the carryings on. I would sit absolutely mortified, emulating their brain as best I could, and I got damn good at it over time, hearing our meetings through their ears from where, so to speak, they were sitting. Melody, raised in and still connected with a Brethren group almost exactly like my own, identified with the sentiment of the song as to strangers coming out.
5: Every now and then, a stranger would walk in, and I would just die of embarrassment for yeah, them. Me too.
0: Me too. Me <laughs> too. Someone said we all turn our heads like cows to look at like a herd of cows just turning our heads to look at oh a new person. But no, We do. I I got we definitely did. And I but I was very good at turning off like the knowledge of what all the brethrenese meant and all the Christianese. Turn that off and listen and hear how much of the sentence is incomprehensible. But I don't maybe normal people don't do that.
5: I never thought about it too much from a, the point of view of a stranger. I was just like if I saw a stranger come in, like I would just shut down because it was so bad, but I did at some point realize that there is a whole different vocabulary going on here. There's different syntax when the brethren talk in, in the church. Mm -hmm. And so I never understood that. Um, even when I was trying really hard to buy into the brethren church beliefs and fit in, um, I never got the insistence right on that, that I literally have heard teenage boys in my old, this would have been like 20 years ago, teenage boys stand up and pray for those on beds of affliction. Like, right. do you mean sick people? Like, why aren't you praying for the sick?
0: We we had um, this idea that this was really holy because it was really ancient. But I think any Catholic or Jewish person would scoff at the idea that Victorian is old. I mean, yes, we can yes, affect the language right. from a, like a century ago, <laughs> but that's a century. That's not millennia ago. Um, yeah. It's not that old. So this
3: is a few years later. Um, so, yeah, uh, as you got older and you aged out, you could only really go there, supposed to go there until like probably you're around grade eight. But a lot of us would sort of just keep going, never really tell. But eventually they'd be like, well, what are we going to do with you? And some of us even used it just to get a ride in. Like, we would just not go to the church, and we'd mm-hmm. just take off. Years later, there's a youth group that kind of split it off, and I'm some of the same people. And we we go to this guy's place, and we do the same thing. It was a little more, um, you know, mature discussions, because everyone's probably about 15, 16, 17 at that point. And, yeah. yeah, so this one particular thing, they said, oh, okay, so, you know, if you come bring these cans of food, we're going to get on a bus, we're going to go up, we're going to help this food bank, we're going to, you know, donate the food, we're going to help them with anything that they need. We're going to go to McDonald's, you get a free meal, and it's all good. It's like, oh, all right, well, that sounds like a good thing to do. And it gets me out. and like, sure. So a bunch of us get on there, we bring some food, we're laughing and having a good time, just, you know, being kids. And we get up there, we get to the food bank, we do the whole food bank thing, help them shuffle around a bunch of stuff. I'm perfectly fine with helping people. They're really nice about it. So then we go over to Bell's Corners, uh, the McDonald's and Bell's Corners, and we get our free meal. So we get this, like, choose anything you want, and you get a meal. And I'm like, oh, cool. So we get this, and we're all back on the bus, and we're eating our meal. And everyone's like, wow, what a great way to kind of kill a summer evening type of thing. And then at some point we pull over and we're at this church. Like it was like at the time, I don't think I realized it was a church, but we had pulled over and it's like, okay, we're going to go in. And so we go in and it is a church, but it's it's like a church I had never seen before. It reminded me of the churches that you used to see on – like the old televangelists of the 80s. There's a ton of people there, and this is definitely a little more amped up. This is the, the televangelist style.
6: Thank you, Jesus. G- How long have you been suffering with this colitis? Eight years. Eight years, here it goes in the name of
1: Jesus. Rack! Rack! God God did something for me today that doctors haven't been able to do for eight years. He healed me of heart trouble. He healed me of colitis. He healed me of diabetes. Praise his holy name.
3: Now, the interesting thing is that a little time before the church thing happened, a few of us had decided that maybe it would be fun to take a little LSD to make the trip home a little more
0: interesting. You were like 15 or 16 or 17? Yeah, I
3: was probably 16 16 or 17, I think I was. um, And there was about four or five of us who just decided that we would get a little bit of LSD. Didn't take a ton, but just enough to let's get a nice thing going on and, and, and we'll enjoy the ride home. So we didn't know we were going to get this detour. So we go into this church and now it's like amping up and we're kind of starting to feel this. And then the whole thing takes a complete turn off to the left. It's like just goes insane Suddenly it's the faith healing. We're seeing people come up and going like, this lady's been in a wheelchair for 10 years and we'll we'll command the power of
0: Christ to remove the demons from you. Like... Bill Cosby was doing faith healing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's good to see the kids today with demons. Yeah.
3: (laughs) But it was like, oh, I can't believe this is happening in front of me. This must have seemed
0: really surreal.
3: It was was surreal even without the drugs, honestly, because... Up to that point, I'd only ever seen the Jimmy Swaggerts and that yeah. kind of thing on TV. But to see it happening in front of me and 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 watching it unfold and, and noticing, like, you know, yeah, that, that lady did not really walk away from the wheelchair. She was kind of carried away. Like, you could tell it's like, this is not on the up and up, and it's getting really weird. And then a lot of people are like, their hands are in the air, and there's lots of them, and it's almost... It is the cultish thing where you're like, okay, there's about ten of us who are, like, all looking at each other going, what on earth is happening here? Like should we be here? Like the person who brought us here, like the the pastor, whatever he's with it. Like he's hands up and Oh God, I feel the power of Jesus. He's in me. We have, this has escalated way too quickly. Mm -hmm. And now people, it's like you need to come down and everyone's trying to gather in the small area and they're all like reaching their hands out and Oh, please let me touch the Lord. And they're singing really loudly. I mean, it's, it's intense. And I'm sure that if you looked from the front up to the back, everyone would pretty much be out of their seats except for, like, this group of about five five or six of us now are just like, oh, I am way too high, and things are happening, and there's a little bit of hallucinations going on here. Mm-hmm. And this guy is, is going on about the devil, and it is just too much. And I mean, I know some of my friends, like, in this group, they're just going along with it. Like, mm-hmm. if I just do what they're doing, you know... Nothing will happen. I was like, we are just like, we are not leaving these seats. Mm -hmm. And that went on for quite a while. And then it ended. And it was like, okay. And we get on the bus. We go, get back home. And it was just almost like a good portion of us like, no more youth group. We're we're done. I'm I'm out. Like, Mm -hmm. whoa, too much.
0: After years of this, outsiders' brain emulation calibrated frequently by listening to outsiders with an open mind, showing no defensiveness or attempt to justify, let alone sell what we were doing in the way that we were doing it, I really came to rely on listening to things we said to see how crazy and contradictory they might or might not have sounded and in fact been to outsiders. All of that could be much more clearly heard if only one was a stranger and entirely lacking the indoctrination required to zone out while the zany was being enacted in front of each of us for between 1 and 2,000 hours by the time we reached 16. Ed, who'd been a Plymouth Brethren missionary in Columbia until he was excommunicated for marrying another Plymouth Brethren missionary named Ben, when hearing how many divisions and fights and fallings out characterized our Plymouth Brethren groups, asked, Are this churches still alive? Yes. And I don't know why. Yeah. Um, And when you say alive, all I mean is that there's some people still going there and, you know, I don't know how alive that is, but they haven't, the doors aren't locked, you know, on Sunday morning. Evan, who is working on his PhD in economics said, I read an article not that long ago. I think it was about the Anglican Church of Canada, but I could be wrong. And they basically, they hired a couple statisticians on their staff And they ran the numbers as many ways as they could. And if I remember correctly, it's like they don't think they'll have any members by 2050. Most of the people who heard this song when I first wrote it and who maybe played it with me live have gone on with their lives. And our connection has long since dried up and died away over the years. Troy is an exception to that, remembering a concert of sorts at which we played Vultures in the Sky. And also a song about church divisions called No One's Right, which does not go on this album. My lack of confidence and performance chops, and my overall shyness and locked-inness, can be heard in this old 90s cassette recording of Vultures in the Sky that I did by myself before I knew any musicians. Note the 80s drum machine with conga drums on it. about that song no one's right here's a recording from troy's dad's basement showing what happens when a guy with an acoustic guitar writes a song about church divisions and suddenly has an entire band of energetic young musicians all turned up way too loud for any of us to hear much of anything kicking the melodic little song into spitting distance of rock and roll country recorded on a device intended to record business memos in a quiet office The portable tape recorder used for this recording distorted heavily when the full band really hit it, and despite how bad recordings of this kind sound and how amateur it is to record yourself when you're playing too loudly to hear much of anything, no recording can convey how incredible it feels to do it.
1: Reason. We're right now together. And I know. Take down who we've been presenting and then go home tell us face. and tell our side of things. It's too late to pretend that this is nice and simple. too late to pretend that things are clear. And it's high time we accepted what we're doing.
3: Some of my favorite songs that we did I I mean, I liked Vultures I always liked, especially the chorus Chorus is really nice, that song Um, And No One's Right We turned that into a very rocking song And honestly, I still think that's a fantastic song Um, With a nice breakdown in the middle, and I have a recording that we did of that song, um, which you obviously made. But so you probably still have it too. But I have a recording of it that we did in my father's uh, back basement. Mm-hmm. I will still happily listen to. <laughs>
1: judge by Did you and consider
0: We were a bunch of backwoods lads from Lanark County, so we called ourselves Lanarchy, with my vote to do it with a French spelling to be Lanarchy and use an anarchy A with an L crossing it, getting voted down quickly. We mainly only had the one opening gig for a band with an even less memorable name than ours. No matter how you try, if you record the parts perfectly, one at a time, and carefully assemble the song, especially if you play most of the parts yourself, you can never recapture the messy energy and chaotic feel of the song played in unison with a band that has been working together enough to react to each other's playing on the fly. Mistakes are covered, and energy is felt. Live is messy and you can't control the technical aspects of the recording and mixing very well, but it's a special something. Jay Semco of the platinum record-selling Canadian band The Northern Pikes contrasts for me the one-part-at-a-time strategy of recording Big Blue Sky, their first commercially successful album, with subsequent albums, which mostly had the band get recorded playing the songs together, but with each instrument miked live off the floor to try to have some control over the mix, while still having each musician's performance being informed by playing with the other members in real time.
6: Dawn and I would play together, you know, so the rhythm section, the bass and the drums would play together, but there was never a time in the making of that record where all four people were playing live off the floor together. No way. You know, So even though we played, which was really bizarre when you think of it, but it was really a trend that was a big thing at that time in the recording happening and a lot of records being made around Toronto, which is where we made it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of bands were kind of making really popular that style of recording, like, I don't know, Def Leppard and and other commercial bands with, you know, people that like Mutt Lang was producing where they would record one thing at a time for sonic value and... I guess you can see that. I guess you can see getting certain sounds perfected when you're not blending it with everybody at once. But at the end of it all, you want it to be blending with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And then Secrets, interestingly enough, we did play most of the songs as a group, trying to record everybody live off the floor, which was a reaction to the Big Blue Sky record.
0: It's chemistry one guy suddenly starts doing something a bit more or a bit less or does something new or different and if you're all playing together that choice is often felt in everyone else's performances, which make slight adjustments to match what he's doing. A verse may get a bit more aggressive or dancey or singy. But if a guy does something a bit more or a bit less or does something new or different while recording the final part on an already mostly completed song, naturally those already recorded parts do not change to reflect his performance in any way. He's limited by the already recorded choices that have been made, mostly unless the parts are then re-recorded entirely to match his changes. I am a big Pink Floyd fan as well, and obviously Roger Waters and David Gilmour very at odds. The Blue Rodeo, you know, Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler are very different. Um, and I noticed that with the Pikes, um, I don't, I don't necessarily think there was the the personal conflict or anything like that, but there's that contrast of voices and, and musical approaches. And so like, obviously the voices are really different and that's, that's really adds all this color to it that I think is awesome. Well,
6: oh, thanks. That's, that's kind of what we were trying to do. And that's the nice thing. And that's why I always, I loved, you know, I love the Beatles because there mm-hmm. was everybody sang in that band and it was yeah. cool that we did.
0: The Northern Pikes worked with Hugh Padgham, who told the Pikes how nervous about his voice sting of the police always was when Hugh recorded their albums for them. When I mentioned seeing Hugh on YouTube talking about this, Jay told me some more about how much the individual personalities and interplay of the people in bands defines almost everything at every level. People aren't like guitars that you plug in and strum and expect them to just always work and sound more or less the same. People, especially in groups, often don't work or need coaxing to work. And that is part of what makes the finished product what it is. Makes it human. There's produced like a pro with named Warren Hewitt. Um, that YouTube channel, I think he actually had um, Hugh Padgham on for like an hour long interview. I think he was talking about the police and it was really interesting. He, he didn't, didn't say about Sting's voice, but he gave an idea about how the dynamic, the, the whole recording process had to kind of fit around the band dynamic entirely.
6: Oh yeah, for sure. You know, I think it's uh and every band's different. That's the one thing I've learned. And they're all, their their own little kind of living organism, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with all the different parts and the different habits and personalities and everything else. I mean, it's yes. just its own kind of thing. And it just depends on, on the band. And some bands are really a band where there's like one person is kind of, you know, the boss, like they're kind of a, the person in charge of kind of what's going on and which can sometimes work and sometimes cause conflict. I've witnessed both things. Our band is pretty democratic. There was never a boss. I was never a boss. No, Nobody was ever a boss in the band. You know, it was always just open and still open about things, you know, and I, I, I like it, like to keep it like that. The reason good bands work is because there's a chemistry there that shows itself pretty regularly anyway, and then the music that they're doing. And that can't really be reproduced. It can't. It's a it's a very original type thing.
0: Troy remembers we folks from Lanark County, Ontario, playing Vultures in the Sky in our band on Canada Day, July first, in Napanee, Ontario, hometown of Avril Levine. It rained. Nobody much came. The video we got my brother-in-law's dad to set up got rained on and was set on night mode, so our video of the event is pretty much unwatchable. But for us, this was our band at its best, giving our best performance before doing that thing that bands, churches, and my bandmate and brother in law's marriage to my sister tend to do more often than not.
3: that concert i do and i because I, I i have i have the copy of the yeah. video still and yeah. i watched it actually not too long ago it's wonderful video quality <laughs> but,
0: and to me still with my podcast i love to be able to dredge up some you know badly recorded thing from you know years ago and put a little bit of that in i love doing That's that oh cool.
6: well, i think it's cool
0: with you guys don's always videoing i'm always waiting to see when something's going to be edited that will come out but he's always
6: got that camera out <laughs> Yeah, he's a camera guy. Well, the, we've got some cool stuff from many years ago. I think from as far back as like 1986 or 87, mm-hmm. early 87, maybe. I've seen some of that? I don't even know. I, I have to go back, but there's tons of it. You know, he he kind of downloaded a lot of it onto VHS cassettes years ago. Yeah. So somewhere at home, I've got a six six VHS cassettes that are on whatever the the one where you can capture the most they they move the slowest or whatever you can capture the most information on the tape or whatever there sp so sp yeah, yeah. yeah but what do, what do you remember about
0: that gig
3: um i remember a setting up and then of course the real band coming and going yeah. you can't play here we had to move everything yeah uh and then i remember the rain coming down and going well this isn't really going to be much so we're really just sort of playing for a few of my friends that yeah. came up to watch um and i you know it was The interesting thing about it was, is that it was probably the most harmonious of having all three of the songwriters like together with selected songs, everybody giving their fullest effort, everybody doing what they can to kind of make everything sound really good.
0: And I looked at the video such as it is with raindrops, you know, making it so you can't see what's going on and all that. Um, What surprised me is it looks like everyone's playing all of my guitars. Like, it's my bass, it's my electric, like, everyone's using all my stuff. I don't know why. Yep. I don't remember that.
3: I think about the only person that's not using your stuff is me. Is yeah. that I have my guitar? And, and Chris... That, that was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. I, honestly, I came away with that going, wow, it was really cool. And again, it was just, we had practiced really, like, yeah. there was a couple times where we had all practiced just very hard, mm-hmm. played a show, and it just came off like clockwork yeah. because we were truly dedicated and focused. Mm-hmm. It was the peak. If we were a real band that made money, that was like the final album. Like, it's our
0: Hotel California. Yeah. Before everything just went to shit and somebody screaming at somebody else, like... I often suspect that having a successful gig makes bands kind of break up. They kind of stop trying as hard because maybe they they don't believe they can do better or even repeat that success, and they stop trying. It's, you know, why are we practicing? We're practicing for the gig. Well, we've had the gig... So now what? Now why are we practicing? Well, maybe we're not practicing. When it comes to band breakups, Jay Semco knows what he's talking about. Before hitting it big, three of the four members of what was to become the Northern Pikes were in a band called The Idols, which was on the verge of becoming the Northern Pikes and hitting it big. Instead, they broke up.
6: I, I started writing lyrics, I guess, back in The Idols. I started trying to write mm-hmm. songs back then. And we ended up becoming really kind of an original an original band with all of our own music. And we were playing, we had albums worth of music. And then, you know, we, it's one of the kind of disagreements we had. I, I thought we should just go to a studio and make an album. And, and the guys were, they wanted to build a studio with the other guys.
1: Wow.
6: And they started working on the studio and it was like, you know, I started on it and I just thought, what are we doing here? We're musicians. Like this is mm-hmm. going to take a long time. And yeah. maybe at the end of the day, it could have been worth it. they eventually did build it, I left, I quit the band. I ended up joining another band shortly after called 17 Envelope.
0: As to the Northern Pikes themselves, Jay remembers them breaking up at the height of their success fairly needlessly in retrospect.
6: We essentially, we broke up in 1993. We were just, we were done. You know, I didn't think we'd ever get back together again. You know, we kind of divided everything up and did all the things that we needed to do and, you know, legally and, And it was not an easy or cheap thing to do, to to do all that stuff. And such a weird thing that happened, you know, I mean, we were just, there were many factors involved, but there were personal issues as well as kind of professional issues. And it was just, uh, it wasn't working. It was like a really bad, like you say, like a really bad relationship going off the rails, you know?
0: But it wasn't like you had released an album that hadn't done
6: well. Yeah. Well, you know, what was really weird for me in some ways was We recorded a live album, partly at the Spectrum in Montreal and uh, Toronto at the Danforth Music Hall.
0: With the really heavy, unimportant version.
6: Yeah, you know, I think it's a really good live album. I like it a yeah. lot. But the end. so the band broke up, and really, as of I think we played Canada Day in. It was very really anticlimactic. It might have been in Fort francis Ontario, because we had this run of gigs that were still booked that we just played, and it was really kind of relaxing, you know, because we didn't we weren't uptight about the show, so we all just kind of you know the night of and then the night before, you know, just kind of played cards of mm-hmm. had a few drinks, just chilled out and and sort of enjoyed our company, which is really what we were kind of starting to miss, I think, you know, around that time. So we left on pretty good terms overall, you know, when we've said goodbye to each other there. And then uh, but then I went back to Saskatoon and I was at the mix sessions for the live record for mm-hmm. gig. And they were also putting together uh, a TV thing for it. So I was there for like some of the video editing, you know, because the company was based on Saskatoon that was doing this. So it was really kind of bizarre to just be hearing all these live versions of these songs from this band that just broke up that I was in. Yeah. <laughs> it was very surreal and bizarre, you know, and, but the, the records sounded good. It was a good live mm-hmm. record in retrospect, you know, we should have just taken a year off people were itching to do certain things at that time, you know, I know Brian kind of, he had it, he really wanted to do a solo record. And I, and I think now I think, well, God, that would have been a great idea actually. Like, why mm-hmm. not just take the time, let people do those kind of projects and not, not be so freaked about it, you know, yeah. kind of thing.
0: Besides the live album and TV concert movie, the last hurrah for the group back in the day was to do the theme song and incidental music for the 1990s TV show Due South about a Mountie in Chicago. Unsurprisingly, Just as married couples need to talk things through and get perspectives from friends and sometimes marriage counselors, Jay blames the Pike's premature collapse partly on their efforts to self-manage.
6: We parted ways with our management. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, I guess, a couple of years before we had broken up. And we never really replaced them with other management, which we should have done. We tried to kind of do it on our own between ourselves and the people at the record label, and it was just a, a, a big job that wasn't being done correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think sometimes having uh managers around, they're they're at least a another uh ear and voice from just outside the band that spends a fair amount of time with them. So they kind of get to know certain things and and what makes people tick and and They could probably, you know, people can gauge things like that. Like, you know what, these guys, this is a bad situation percolating. They need to take three months off. Forget it. We're not booking anything from, you know, February till June. You know what I mean? Like those kind of things. Decisions need to be made sometimes. And of course, you know, we were a very democratic band, Pikes, and we would all make group decisions on things. But it was you know, it was good having another ear and another opinion there sometimes. And so we didn't really replace that. And I don't think that was really a wise thing to do. And that's sort of a recipe for self-destruction when pets start trying to manage themselves, because it brings a whole series of other factors into the equation that weren't there for most of your career, you know,
0: the Pikes reformed just under ten years later and remain that way. With members doing whatever side projects they want nowadays.
6: So this time around, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of weird doing songs from thirty two years ago. Well, what we've done for a number of years now with Pike stuff is kind of uh, we make everything a co-write. So mm-hmm. that way we just remove all egos and other potential issues that might occur, and we just everybody feels free to contribute. of the song, not that they wouldn't, you know, but there's just no, because any one of my songs or any one of the other guys' songs might be slightly different if one of us hadn't been involved, you know?
0: Vultures in the Sky, original title, The Vulture Song, had four verses, which for some reason many of my songs did, if not six, when what you really want is three verses and a bridge. This song has no bridge because when I wrote it, I didn't know how to do that. I also didn't do a lot of tempo or key changes to try to make the song, well, change, either. Didn't know my way around that. What I tended to do instead, to give that change of mood, that break in the repetition, was to simply play part of the song really quiet, without all the instruments sounding like it did when I was writing it before I'd layered things all over it and pretended I had a band backing me up as I played it. The song's wearing all these layers throughout, and then suddenly, one part is naked, Nudity is a pretty surefire way of getting attention, good or bad. So you can start a song out with the music all stripped down, quiet and slow, with maybe just one voice and one instrument, and then have everything come in all at once and pick up the energy. Or you can have the other things join slowly, one at a time, throughout the verses, strategically like chess. If they are going to all hit with a big wham, you maybe want to do it with a tempo speed up, and usually on a chorus, or maybe after a quiet intro maybe even a quiet first verse too. Stairway to Heaven is a great example of a song that starts very softly and quietly and simply eventually picks up steam and by the end it's rocking out only to go soft again at the very end. You can do that. Or you can do the quiet thing toward the end instead, suddenly dropping everything out but voice and maybe guitar to be more intimate. That's a favorite trick of mine. To me it's like dropping all the rock star pretense and saying, come here. I'm gonna tell you what the point of this song really is, what the heart of it is. You can then make everything come back in once that's been conveyed, which adds more change. Or you can just drop all the extra stuff out for the end, slow down from the tempo you've been using, and finish the song very soberly in that stripped down, slowed down way. With this song, I opted for that last choice, where playing the whole song with just one voice and just one instrument would probably be pretty monotonous, Having that happen as a change at the end adds color and sincerity instead. It's dramatic if used sparingly. Also, credit where credit's due. One of the rules that some of us elementary songwriters break is the rule of threes. You're supposed to do a thing musically, repeat it once in more or less the same form, and then make sure there's a change the third time, one you can feel. Bill knew about this. I didn't. Even something simple... Like the blues does this. I woke up this morning
1: and I got the blues. I woke up this morning and I got the blues.
0: Now I can think of anything that rhymes too well with blues. It was John Gorka who pointed out at the first live music concert I ever went to that looking at blues songs, he has learned that waking up in the morning rather than in, say, the afternoon, is sufficient in and of itself to give a musician the blues. So either the third line in a verse or the third verse in a song, it should be totally different. I didn't know how to build that into the songwriting, though there's a lot you can do in performance and a lot you can do in production to make sure the third verse feels a bit different. So the chorus on this one repeated the same chords every time, with no change. And Howard, the guy who was supposed to be helping me with my first go at recording in the studio, told me that a good thing to do would be to drop that E minor that I had in every line of every verse, but not anywhere in the chorus, back in. It's been missing, and then it returns at the end. It was a great idea. Thanks, Howard. When I was trying to record my own version of a simple album inspired by nothing more complex to produce than Pink Floyd's epic double album, The Wall, I was learning stuff like that from the musicians I came into contact with because I didn't know many musicians. It was learning left and right. They didn't know all the things they knew, so they'd mention them without knowing I didn't know them and could be asked to explain what a breakdown or a middle eight or a vamp was. As to what I was imagining here, I was thinking of a Clint Eastwood western such as High Plains Drifter, in which a stranger rides into the story from over the horizon, essentially from nowhere. The people in the clearly messed up town he encounters are too wrapped up in, accustomed to, and involved in what goes on there to really get how messed up it all really is. So what the audience needs is a stranger, an outsider, someone new to ride in and see it all with fresh eyes, ask about it, and interact with it. I guess as to my life, my friends, and what seemed messed up to a young man as to the Plymouth Brethren world as well as the world proper outside of it, I wanted that objective character to enter my story. So this lyric is written that way, from an outsider's perspective, albeit with a wanderer drifting in on foot from the high plains rather than a pale rider riding in on a horse. I imagined the whole thing as a novel too. One,
1: two, one, two, three, four...
0: So I had another go about 10 years ago at The Vulture Song on the Death Album. By the end of the album, I had renamed it Vultures in the Sky and called the album Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. I had George in his music store play drums with me. And me playing everything else. The 80s drum machine version had a pair of Kungas. I added some in. For some reason, I really wasn't feeling the slide guitar. I set everything up to do it, and despite slide guitar being probably the style of guitar my MS numb and clumsy fretting hand is going to be affected by least, it's also a style I have pretty much only played on rough versions of this song, and so for a month, the mic sat there, in front of the amp, abandoned and forlorn. I was doubting my own judgment for a tasteful slide part, and also my own ability to play a guitar part with a screwed up left hand. Then, for this third season of the podcast, I was interviewing a guy named Tim, who commented on my song topics on Facebook. Tim has a pretty dramatic substance abuse story, so I was looking forward to having him talk about that on the episode after this one about that. I was explaining about my friends getting hurt driving cars and using power tools and doing jobs while drunk, and this happened.
7: I, I became a guitar player maybe when I was about 16 years old. I picked up a guitar. I got in trouble for shoplifting and uh, got grounded for a little while. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just played a lot of guitar, and it became that became my other escape. You know, right. I mean, big time, buddy. That, that that you you're a guitar player. You know, man. <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh About uh, two or three days after I made this, I came back to Christ, and oh, I'm not going to do this. I was hungover, and I'm I'm cutting aluminum ladders, and uh, the rung that I was cutting caught on the saw and mm-hmm. jerked my hand in, and I'm missing. I lost a finger and a half on my, on my fretting hand. So the first thing I'm looking at my hand, you know, it's a bloody stump here. And I'm like, Oh my God, there goes the guitar. Right. And, uh, but what I did, man, is I, I had a cast on my hand with just about a half an inch of each of my fingers left sticking out of it. And, uh, I was living, I then moved in with my dad and we worked something out. I had a little toy guitar that my sister had and I would, Play that little thing. I was, for six months, I was off work because of my hand, and uh, I would play that. And I, I learned how to play. Uh, man, my my pinky is every bit as strong as my first finger is, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a cigar box guitar. There we go. Actually made out of cigar box, three strings. A friend of mine made this one. I I make them myself. Uh, I've made. I just got finished with one, but it's it's an open tuning. There, there you
5: go.
7: But so, with the open tuning, it's really, really easy to uh, do the slides. Uh, I've got a slide here, man. I'll show you three strings man it's pretty easy <laughs> that's
0: awesome so i looked at tim's fretting hand which he held up to his webcam missing his index finger entirely with only half of the next one still there and i offered to let him try adding a slide part to the vultures in the sky song for me and so during covid the u.s canada border closed him in illinois me in Ontario. we started collaborating with this song he found the three-string guitar box guitar limiting, so did the part for me on his usual six-string Gibson SG. I wanted an intro for the album, and I didn't have one in mind. So I thought about High Plains Drifter, the movie that this song is thinking about a little bit, and I rewatched it. Now the intro to that movie struck me as being very interesting and had the kind of creepy feel that I was hoping to do on this album. So what I did was I ripped it off entirely, listened very carefully to what the music does at the start of the movie High Plains Drifter, and then did my best to replicate it with my stuff. So it has wind, And it has tubular bell chimes, which I had recorded for a different song bored from the high school's music room and flipped backwards. I substituted footsteps on gravel stolen from YouTube for the original horse hoof beats. I pretty much hummed the movie theme, the way they hum it, but using my chords and key. I tried to figure out one of the sounds that they were doing that sounded very eerie, trying first to do it with a theremin. And finding that that was missing something, so I just did it with moaning sounds with my voice. and by the end of it, came up with a fairly close counterfeit. Credit where credit's due, I've been doing a lot of listening to the Movie Oubliette podcast.
6: Oh, incredible.
0: And as Conrad and Dan, the two guys who host that podcast, are both score writers. one of the little stunts that they usually pull off is make incidental music for the podcast that's completely based on the music from a given movie they're discussing for that episode. That's about as much ado as there should probably be. So without any further, here is the current version of the song.
1: They call out so you know they're here The dust where the wonders dance Searching heart and strong hands The sparse grass is a dunnish brown Thin as an old man's hair And rotten through and falling down A small wood hut is there spends you to build a roof, not much to lay the eyes on, grows old and weak as it grows more leaks faded to gray, and a gray horizon.